Welcome to the podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, the podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, here are your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. All right, welcome back, everyone, uh, for another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. My name is Matt Shockey, uh, and sitting across from me is Jeff Hudson, and we start every podcast the same way, introducing ourselves to a new beverage, not beer this time. Uh, Jeff, we actually have something with a cork. I'm feeling kind of fancy. Yeah, it's uh, Four Roses, small batch bourbon, and it's uh, they call it Four Roses. They make four batches of bur- bourbon. And they changed what they call the mash bill. That's okay. the amount of corn, rye, and malted barley that's in it. And they brew four batches of this and then mix it together. Oh. Way. Now, you, you educated me last time on, like, bourbon, scotch. Like, they're all whiskeys, right? Right, right. What, what's the difference between, like, a bourbon and a scotch? Well, what they're made out of, and corn okay. specifically, with would be a huge difference with the with the corn and the rye mixture that is the backbone of the bourbon, and then how it how it's aged as well, and what kind of barrels they're put in, and where they're made. Uh, I think bourbon's uh, Kentucky. Bourbon's Kentucky, and isn't it has to be made in Kentucky uh, to carry the name bourbon, right? Yeah. So like Jack Daniels, which tastes. To a lot of people, like a bourbon is actually a sour mash whiskey made in Tennessee. Okay. So yeah, I, I thought that was true that the only only the state of Kentucky can actually call something bourbon legally. Um, the last time we had something, I believe it had a touch of honey in it. I don't think this has that nope. touch of honey. All right, so here no, we go. No touch of honey. This is just bourbon. Just bourbon. Here we go. I like that. Like it? That's smooth. It's pretty smooth. It isn't is. It? Yeah. If you're used to drinking hard alcohol, um, it's a lot of hard alcohol has that kind of a kick, and but that is not that's smooth. That's a nice smooth. I don't want to call it a burn. I don't know if that's the proper name for it, but yeah. you get that. It, it is a finish. It, yes, a nice smooth finish to it. It is something you could sit back and sip, um, and enjoy the warm glow. Yeah, by the, you're by feeling the, it right now, are you? I am, and All by right. the end of this podcast, I might be feeling a little bit more of it because we have half a bottle here, and that's um, it's 90 proof, which means 45 percent alcohol. So we'll try to keep everything. Yeah, we probably won't drink the whole. thing. No, we won't drink the whole thing. I don't think. All right, so this pod is the beginning, really, Jeff. We just talked about this, probably a multi-part pod. Um, we're not going to finish all of this in one evening, uh, or this would run forever. So at some point we're going to call it a quits and then do part two, uh, and probably even a part three, because our topic is pretty big. Um, we're going to talk about the constitution and, um, I'll start this off by saying that it really is what makes America, America. So many other countries can have a cohesive relationship because of a religion or because of an ethnicity. In America, we lack that common anchor because we come from all over the world. I think we might be the only country in the world where our common bond is really our political ideology, that we come from a liberal democracy that allows people to uh, vote and have a say in their government. And the Constitution in some weird way, not weird way, is what unites us. And I think that makes us sort of unique in world history. 
Well, and, um, you know, the Constitution came after, obviously, the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence was just that. It declared uh, that we were now going to be free of Great Britain and start a country that was called for the first time and that was our United previ- States. And that was our previous podcast. The first podcast right. of this season was on the Declaration. And and then, you know, the Declaration and the Constitution are our foundational documents. Now, some people I know know of our uh, listeners uh, have been uh, what they read, but uh, the New York Times has just put out something they call the 1619 Project. And they got black writers on their staff uh, and other black writers and uh, to uh, look at the history and consult historians and write about the centrality of slavery to the American experience. Well, tell us why 1619 well, is such an, an odd date they, in American history. Yeah. Every American should, should know the year 1619. I, I think so, too. But 1619, a group of slaves who were stolen from the Portuguese by British pirates, um, uh, landed in what is a Jamestown colony. Now... The aim of the project, and this is a direct quote, the 1619 Project aims to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our true founding. So the time when slaves were brought to Jamestown was our true founding. And, you know, I think they're being a little polemical here, I don't think. But, you know, they are trying to... Um, tell the story of slavery and Americans uh, dealing with slavery as central to the American experience. Which you can't, I, you can't understand, the idea is that you can't understand American identity unless you also understand how slavery influenced us. And so 1619 is sort of that beginning date where those two things mix. Jamestown was actually founded in 1607. So only 12 years later, we have this first documented case of slaves being brought to right. the New World. It's not slavery as most of our listeners would know it when they see pictures of the Civil War. It's not that yet. We're going to evolve into that. Right. And you can listen to previous podcasts. Black slave codes hadn't been written at this point. Right. But 1619 is also the date of the first House of Burgesses uh, in Virginia. So it's a paradox for America. We have the first slaves being brought to America, but the House of Burgesses is also founded, and a Burgess is simply a representative. So basically, it's a House of Representatives. They were electing a representative democracy. So in one year, we embrace slavery and we embrace this democracy for freedom and, a, and people having a say in their own government. It's a paradox of being an American. Right. And there's there's tension between those ideals right from the beginning between uh, people espousing what we believe in self-government and human rights and then having slaves. Now, it should be known that 1619 certainly wasn't uh, uh, the date uh, that there were um, slaves first in what is now the United States. I mean, the Spanish had bought, you know, had had black slavery for almost 100 years. And uh, Puerto Rico, there were Spanish colonies and forts in Florida, Georgia, and what is now South Carolina. So this is the English right. experience with slavery. And Native Americans had been slaves enslaved before that as well. And it should also be mentioned, just to put this in context, is when those slaves were bought to Jamestown, 
it was part of the British Empire. I mean, it was there wasn't actually a country called the United States, and British slavery was practiced. It would eventually be outlawed in the British Empire, but it was a practice there, and as it was practiced throughout history. I mean, the pyramids were built by slave labor. The Greeks and the Romans had slaves. Um, uh, Islam had a long-standing. Uh, most of the cultures in the Middle East had slaves. There's black Africans sometimes had black Af- African slaves. And Islam, there's a, there was white slavery. There was black slavery. This is not an, a, we're not taking an apologist view here. No, we're trying to put it in context. Right. And I agree with you that there that that tension. And and to me, I still think the two founding I would call 1776. And that's because we had slavery. And now you have a document that says you have unalienable rights. And so now you have some, you have tension and there's incompatibility between right. those two things. And that tension is going to drive a lot of American history. And so I, I, I do think, I appreciate the effort to make black slavery central to the American ex- experience for people to know that. I agree with that. I would just, uh, I would probably still date our founding because my, my point is until you have a document that is, you know, going to be what most people have regarded the fact that uh, the foundation of your country saying that this is wrong, that you should. Have, then there's no then 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 that's that slavery is not unique. You're just another place that has slaves. Right. We're the, we're not Americans that have slaves. We're the British Empire that has slaves. Right. Right. So we like to think of ourselves as a country starting in 1607 with the founding of Jamestown, but we aren't. Right. Um, really. You, as you say, the founding document for us is the Declaration of Independence. That was the first time really put down on paper and adopted by a representative body that we were going to be an independent nation and be separate. Now, like that, we go from the British Empire having slaves to United States or America having slaves, even right. though they didn't know in 1776. And a specific document saying, oh, we believe on unalienable rights right. and that all men are created equal. And to me... That's the the founding moment, and but it has to. You have to keep in mind that in, that that high aspiration written by a slaveholder, Thomas right. Jefferson, is in tension with what is actually going on, um, and we're going to find that tension in the Constitution as well, and and we're going to get around at some point. There's so much to talk to about the Constitution. Constitution, but we're going to definitely get around to talking about how slaveholders and slavery influenced the Constitution because it did heavily. Yeah, we are a country of paradoxes. The the very document that gives us slavery and sanctions slavery is also the document that's going to free the slaves. Uh, We had the Three Fifths Clause, and then you have the Thirteenth Amendment. So yeah, we're jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit there, but. It's a the 1619 project is if serves nothing else is to tap us on the shoulders Americans and remind us of our history and remind us that this nation was built on the backs many times built on the backs of slaves people didn't want to be here absolutely and for a long time in our nation's history the largest immigrant population in America were black people from Africa were African slaves coming to America. Yeah. Involuntary. Involuntary. (laughs) Yes. But if you talk about immigrant groups, uh, certainly forced immigration. Okay, so 
we had the Declaration of Independence in 1776, uh, considered our first founding document. Um, but Jeff, how did, I want to ask you a question here, the war's going on. We, we write the document in 1776. How, how do we make decisions? What government did the colonies or the if you didn't win the war yet. So what, what government did we use well, during the war to make decisions? Yeah, and, and that's a great question. And we had the Continental Congresses. I think some, the Declaration was a product of the Second Continental Congress. Right. But that proved, uh, you know, people understood that meeting every once in a while and, and, and making rules wasn't the best way. So the uh, America's first real national government was the Articles of Confederation, which is a, was adopted in 1781. And I, I, I think it's important for everybody to understand the term confederation. And that is an organization, a larger government, made, made up of member units. In our case, they were the colonies, or which became states. And in a confederation, the states retain ultimate sovereignty. So the Articles of Confederation was designed to help fight the revolution, which it did successfully, to carry on um, foreign diplomatic relations, which the young country needed to do, especially with France. But it was not designed as a, a government with ultimate authority. Americans still felt that they were ultimately uh, South Carolinian or Virginian, or from Massachusetts, it was it wasn't a, it wasn't a unifying document. No, it it, it was a practical document. It's something they could get done. There needed to be some kind of uh, continental army. There needed to be a unified strategy to fight the revolution, and that's what it did basically. So in 1783, when the Treaty of Paris is signed, uh, to give you an idea of the uncertainty that exists, France is planning to send 13 ambassadors to the United States, one for each individual state, because there is, we don't know what it's going to look like. Um, we lo when we win the war, we lose a giant unifier. And what unified the colonies was a common enemy in Great Britain. Once the war is won and the Treaty of Paris is signed, and the Treaty of Paris is actually very generous to the colonists, they get a lot of, a lot of what they wanted. Uh, they get their independence, but they get a lot more than that. Um, the Confederation begins to show its weakness. Uh, and there's a few things that the Confeder Articles of Confederation just did not do and were unable to do that's going to lead to its ultimate failure. Now, when you look at the Founding Fathers, it makes sense why they would want to put a lot of power in the state governments. They were afraid of a strong central government. They rebelled against the strong central king. So to keep that I keep the power in the states. And as you point out, they thought of themselves as from Pennsylvania or New York or Connecticut. They did not think of themselves as Americans. So when they wrote this document, um, there was they couldn't control interstate trade. Uh, so if you were trading something between Pennsylvania and, uh, and Maryland, you could put a tariff on it. Uh, Maryland could say, no, we're going to put a tariff on whatever's coming in from Pennsylvania, and we're going to favor Delaware over Pennsylvania on trade. Uh, the federal government couldn't tax. They could ask states for money, but they couldn't tax. Uh, they couldn't raise an army. They couldn't raise a navy. Um, well, they, they had a small army. They had, remember, we're surrounded by the Spanish in the south, uh, the British in the north and Canada, the French in the West, which became the Louisiana Purchase, but there were French there. So we're surrounded by hostile. You have Indian nations that are hostile to the United States. 
we did have an army of 625 soldiers. Well, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's, it's not like we were defenseless. <laughs> 600. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's 25. <laughs> That's embarrassing. <laughs> um, and within that document was the was its own death. Because the death of the document was that you could not amend the Articles of Confederation without having a 13 out of 13 vote. Uh, had to be unanimous. And try to get try to get 13 close friends together and decide where you want to go eat. Um, everyone's hungry. Everyone wants to go eat. You all agree on that, but you still can't agree on where to go eat. Now try to imagine getting 13 states together that have 13 separate interests and 13 ways they want to go and try to get all 13 of them to agree. Pennsylvania and Connecticut are arguing over lands to the West. That almost becomes a shooting war between Pennsylvania and Connecticut. Uh, Trade is grinding to a halt. There isn't a universal currency. Um, the federal government can't even coin money. The whole thing is grinding to a halt. And the federal halt. government is in debt. Right. I mean, we, we, we had soldiers at the end of the revolution that wanted to march on, on Philadelphia, where the Continental Congress was meeting, uh, to make them pay, take it over and make them pay. We couldn't pay our soldiers and we couldn't pay foreign nations our debt. And we were quickly becoming a country of debtors and creditors. And in Massachusetts, um, we have a rebellion happening when courts are foreclosing on farms because they cannot pay their debts. And a man by the name of Daniel Shea is going to lead a group of armed men into the courthouses. Former revolutionary soldier. Absolutely. And those, those revolutions are happening, those mini revolutions are happening in every single state or, co or former colony. So now you have a government that can't tax, they can't raise an army, they can't control trade, uh, they can't coin money, and now there's literally armed rebellion happening in the states, and there's 625 men can't solve that problem. We are at a crisis situation. We call it the critical period in American history. And they convened once again in 1787 to come to Philadelphia on the auspices that they are going to revise the Articles of Confederation. Um, but that's not what they do. No, they, they got to get rid of it. They, right. and, and a lot of them know that. And that's one of the reasons that the uh, and, and they know people will fear that. And it's they, they meet in the summer and they keep the windows down. Yeah. They don't want any uh, news getting out because, again, there are people like Patrick Henry and other people who are terribly afraid that once we get a national government, it will ruin the revolution. The revolution was for Americans to gain their freedoms, to gain their rights. And the idea is, you know, those people who are against a strong, a new strong federal government and a document that supports that, were afraid that, that, well, that strong government can take away Americans' rights just like the other British government did. And we don't want that. Um, but uh, it turns out that there were a lot of leaders in the colony or in the new United States who did want that. And like you said, they meet. But one of the most prominent ones that we you've probably heard of popularly is Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was a little bit ahead of his time in looking at America as being more of a, a future industrial and manufacturing power instead of an agricultural power. Uh, and he was sort of pushing for a government that would mirror in some ways the British government because it worked. Um, so when these guys met, as you point out, the first vote they take is a vote of secrecy. And it's not because of a conspiracy. 
It's because they were afraid that if everything was being reported out on whatever was said, that nobody would say anything, um, that they would be tore apart in the press. And in a day before social media and a day before technology, they were able to keep that. And as they met in that summer of 1787, um, very little of anything leaked out. If you look at the uh, Philadelphia newspapers of the time, very little is written. They speculate a lot. They're lo- they know something is going on. They just don't know what it is. Um, they're writing a new government. They don't necessarily have the authority to do that. But the Articles of Confederation are beyond repair. It has to be something new. And they are going to embrace a government of limited power to the central government, but a central government that has very specific powers that correct what was wrong with the Articles of Confederation. You could almost draw a line if you were to list all the problems with the Articles of Confederation, and you can almost draw a direct line into Article One of the Constitution and find out where the framers said, okay, can't coin money, coin money. Can't raise an army, now you can raise an army. Couldn't tax, now you can tax. Couldn't control interstate trade, now you control interstate commerce. So there's really a checklist almost, it seems, of them solving the problems of the Articles of Confederation. Yeah, and exactly. And and remember uh, our last pod, we talked about the idea of the social contract. And that's the idea that people get together and they form a government in order uh, to obtain some security and protect their rights, even though they have to give up some of their freedom to do that, because now you are putting authorities in place that will have control of it. You'll be subject to laws the legislatures make. You'll be subject to courts. But um, that was the idea. The, the social contract is incorporated in the Declaration of Independence. And if we start out with the preamble, we. You know, yeah, it, it's the source of legitimacy, the source of the government. It's, a kind of, it's, it's we the people. We the people are doing this. It's not being imposed. And, you know, what they want to do, they want to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. So that's their wish list. They want these things, and they don't have them now. That, like you said, during the critical period, it's uh, it's not a perfect, and they don't say they're going to have a perfect union, but they want a more perfect one. They don't have justice. They don't have domestic tranquility. They have Shays' Rebellion. Their common defense is 625 soldiers. uh, The general welfare is interesting, and that implies... A little bit of the idea we should we should note that at this time general welfare wouldn't have been seen as uh, you know unemployment insurance or something right. like that, but it would have been seen in projects like Hamilton wanted, where you could promote, uh, you could build roads. And George Washington, I invested some money in a canal scheme. Right, those things promoting those things would be seen as promoting the general welfare, building schools and. Um, and secure the blessings of liberty. So that's what they want to do. And like you said, it is in reaction to the things that weren't being done. Uh, America at the beginning was kind of a near-run thing. It oh, didn't yeah. have to be a country. I mean, it, it didn't have to end up being this continental you know, behemoth of a country. It just didn't, it, you know— Without the Constitution, it would not have. Right, and with and I I think about without that fatal flaw in the Articles of Confederation. Suppose you only needed a two thirds vote to amend the Articles. They may have gone to Philadelphia 
just to amend the articles. I think that Jefferson, for example, thought the articles, I forget his exact quote, but it's the best government under God's uh, on God's planet or something along those lines. And he felt that the Constitution, I mean, that the articles just needed to be tweaked a bit. Now, the when this thing becomes public, so in May of 1787, they go into, uh, they sequester themselves in the middle of the summer and it's horribly hot in Philadelphia. And by September of 1787, this thing is made public. Um, and what is so earth shattering about this is the scope of what they're ta- of what they're trying to do. Uh, democracies have been tried in the past, and they have been successful. We, we are not the first one to this idea of a representative democracy, um, but nothing on this scale had ever been tried before. Uh, the philosophers of the time, the thinkers of the time, would have told you that if this is going to work, it is only going to work on a small scale. On a personal small community, can you have a representative democracy like this? And Madison says, that's not right. Actually, the bigger, the better. The more people that come to the party, the more people that can participate, the safer you will be. The big thing that they were- He writes, he puts that in a series of essays called the Federalist Paper. Right. And that argument is in Federalist 10. Where you know he saw so the the enemy of of democracy and representative government is a faction, correct? So a small group or even a large group. He was worried also about the tyranny of the majority would gain power, and they would do something that you know he defined a faction as a group that had power, but did things inimical to the public good. And he said, you know, you got you got a big country, which the United States could be with a federal government, it's going to be pretty hard to get those factions, to get a faction big enough to control right. or a group of factions. And after you do it for a while, there'll probably be an opposing faction. Right. And they would keep each other in check. It's, it, it, you know, and, and, and remember, they're thinking in enlightenment terms, and we talked about natural law. One way to look at the, the uh, Constitution is sort of, sort of like they were doing their best to create a government gyroscope. So, yes. so yeah, that's a good it, way it, of looking it, at it. You know, if it would get off balance one way or another, the spinning it would spin correctly and would soon right itself, and we would be back to having our rights protected and having a constitutional democracy. I do want to ask you a question at this point. Sure. Um, so Madison says only in a large democracy can you protect the rights of the minority, meaning that the more factions you have the more way that power is going to be split up and one faction can't control too much without the other faction. Or for too long. Or for too long. Yeah. Right. Um, What's the difference between a faction and a political party? That's a great question. And I don't, you know, uh, at the time in the Constitution doesn't mention political parties. And the first president was elected without any affiliation in political parties. So they weren't really perceived and there, there had been political parties in other countries, and you know, Rome and England. And it's interesting they didn't really deal with the question of party in writing the Constitution. So I would say that that the political parties is what Madison had in mind, uh, and you know, political parties are people with similar interests and values that want to get people into office. And, and have political control. So I think 
they would meet uh, the definite Madison's definition of faction. Um, the, the strange thing about the United States, and we've talked about that before, is we only have two major parties. Right. And I think what realistically, if you would look at, you would say that each one of those political parties has a lot of different factions right. in it. And to me, that might prove that Madison was correct. These factions also shift. Right. Some factions, I, I do you know, white, white, uh, white uh, working class people have, have been in the Democratic Party, and and now they and they they were in they Reagan Republicans, and they kind of became Obama Democrats, and some of them went back to be Trump. So they shift around, right. and they change the balance of power. It almost proves that Madison was correct in his assumptions. Yeah, he was correct. You know, political parties are more of a permanent sort of ideology where factions are sort of like they they change and they mold. You could be part of four or five different factions right. and change very quickly, but you're only part of one political party. And the political party tends to be more organized as and their goal is to put people and it has more authority. continuity, but they change too over time. Right. So yeah. So I guess I guess political parties are like the climate, and factions are like the weather. There you go. Yeah. There's a good okay. good analogy for us. So yeah. So let's get. Madison is saying that the bigger the better, the more factions, the safer we're going to be. And as you you alluded to the Federalist Papers, um, there is this large argument going on between Federalists and Anti-Federalists. And we talked about this in previous pods, and you're more than welcome to go back and listen to those because uh, I don't want to dig too deep into the weeds right now um, about is this a good thing? Having all this power in the central government, is this a good thing? And Madison's retort to this isn't you aren't afraid of where power is located. That's not that's not if it's a local government can oppress you just as much as the federal government could oppress you. It is how much power each entity has. So we will take ambition to counter ambition. It's almost like if you, you know, to launch the nuclear weapons, two people have to turn the key. One guy can turn the key all he wants to, ain't crap going to happen. And that's sort of how our government is. Each branch has a different key it can turn, and they all kind of have to work together to achieve anything. So in essence, as you pointed out, I like really like that analogy of a gyroscope that if it leans over too much one way because the executive or the legislative is having too much power, the judicial could right the ship by declaring something unconstitutional. So ambition is designed to counter ambition. Well, right. And, you know, there's this principle of separation of powers, which I think was most popularized by uh, Baron Montesquieu in some a book called Spirit of the Laws. But it divides essential government function in three branches. I think most people know that the legislative branch, which is our Congress, they create laws. The executive branch, which in our system of government is headed by a president, the chief executive. And they, there's a judicial branch, which... Uh, uh, they created a federal court system headed by the Supreme Court to interpret federal laws and also settle disputes among the states and the states with the federal government. And so the idea is we're going to put these people who want to be powerful, want to be in office, we're going to put them in these three different branches. And like you said, they all kind of have to work. The system needs to work together to get anything done. And then on top of separation of powers, we throw in the principles of checks and balances, right? Where you know uh, the the president might want so much money 
for instance, now to build a wall, but the House of Representatives is controlled by the other party, and they don't, they have control over revenue. They have the power of the purse. They have since the beginning of the, the Constitution. So, and they don't want to spend the money to get it done. And that's what it is. There you go. That's separation of powers in a current example. Uh, you know, you might, uh, you might want to ban people from uh, Muslim countries from coming in, but you have to write that ban, the president does, and the president has a lot of power over uh, foreign affairs. But you have to write that ban in a way that shows that you're not discriminating against religion because you can't do that in the United States. Who says you can't? Well, the Constitution interpreted by the Supreme Court says. So you, you might have to rewrite that ban two or three different times. This is what happened in, in order to satisfy those those demands. And, and there you go. The, 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 uh, the branches are separate. I don't know if they're exactly co-equal because no, in, the not co-equal, in, but... in, in the Constitution, the delegated powers are given to the legislature. Right. And, that they're and they intended the legislative branch to be the most powerful branch. Yeah, I think so, too. And to have the initiative, much more right. of the initiative. Uh, and a lot of that initiative in foreign affairs and even in making laws has been uh, the executive branch has gained over the years. And that's a whole nother pod right there. So we're not going to deal with that. So you're right. And then another uh, thing they're worried about is power over the states. Another way they right. divided power is federalism. So they give the national government certain powers and they say, those are yours. Okay, you got those. And then they give the states certain powers and they say, those are yours. And then there are certain powers they share called concurrent powers. Right. So, but but the idea is exactly what you said. They're putting power in a lot of different baskets because mm-hmm. they don't trust. You know, what they see is that when power is concentrated, eventually it becomes corrupt and people lose their freedoms. So they put it in a lot of different baskets, you know, a lot of in order for it. And it doesn't it was never designed to be super efficient. It was designed to protect people's rights. Right. So sometimes when we get when we get upset about the log jams of Congress, that's sort of what I think sometimes the founding fathers had in uh, in mind that people who are debating can't cause problems. Um, before we jump into the Constitution, I think when we jump in, I, I'm going to make this sort of the breaking point for pod one, and then the next pod will actually get into the Constitution itself and talk about the articles. Um, I want you to I have another question for you, and that is the importance of the brevity of the document. Um, the document itself, the Constitution, you could easily sit down and read in, in just 15 minutes. It wouldn't take you very long. I've always thought that the brevity of the document is part of its genius. And do you agree with that statement or am I? Or am no, I-, I absolutely agree with that statement. Um, and, you know, it sets up the principles. It sets up the gyroscope. And they based it, you know, as Madison said, what is government but the greatest of all studies in human nature? And they studied humans and former governments as much as, much as possible. And then, and then they set up this system as best they can to protect uh, people's rights and, and, and yet to have adequate government, which is a balancing act. Because if you give the government, don't give the government enough power, then they can't really protect your rights. The, the country can't grow. We can't protect us, you know, from foreign invasion. If you give the government too much power, you, you know, so there's this, and they set that up and then they allow for change. And in article five, 
it allows the Constitution to be amended. And so there's two big ways the Constitution can change. It can change to interpretations, differing interpretations of the laws by the Supreme Court over time. But the main formal way is through amendments. And even those have been, you know, and I think that does point to um, this, the genius of the Constitution. It's only been amended 27 times. And really, and, the, first and the first 10, 10 were right. all done together, and prohibition was repealed. So it's 15, now you're down to 15. Yeah, 16, yeah, 15 or 16 times, which is in a country that was rural, uh, where people mostly spoke English, where people were mostly farmers. And now you're a country that's mostly urban, has hundreds of different languages spoken, and you still have the same kind. It, it, it's amazing that it's been able to be stretched that way and, and still govern fairly effectively. And, you know, that's a whole other argument about right. how what we need to do. Uh, a, a, govern, a, a nation that's not anything like the nation it was written for. No, the document, and I think we're also very, it was very fortuitous that the document was written in the 1700s. Life was slow. Politics was slow. Uh, things did not happen quickly. And it allowed the founders and next generations to fill in the blanks slowly. They didn't have to answer all the questions at once. If you tried to write that brief a document today, uh, political things are happening so fast and so quickly, you could not possibly fill in all those blanks. Um, but we as a nation were able to do that. When Adams goes too far in the Alien and Sedition Act, they're able to pull that back. Um, when you know Jackson is able to start vetoing because he doesn't like legislation, and then that takes a while to filter in to how the checks and balances are going to work. It, it, I go back, I'm going to leave this pod almost in the beginning of what you, you made a point that, in essence, you didn't say it this way, but we're kind of lucky. Like all the cogs kind of slipped into place just right. We had the right people at the right time writing the correct document. And you take any of those things out, we aren't necessarily what we are. We don't have the Constitution. Right. And the Constitution, and, and to bring it full circle to what I was talking about, it, it, it is going to allow, and we can talk about that in further pods, it is going to allow the institution of black slavery to continue. And that's, that's going to lead to the greatest war in American history. Uh, that's its biggest flaw that I see, that it allowed that. And yet, you know, there will be people that argue that unless you did accept that institution, there couldn't have been a constitution written. So we are, and back to the paradox, that... You know, what happened there in Philadelphia did it in, uh, you know, was a great document in some ways for human freedom. What happened there in Philadelphia was a denial of freedom for many humans. And, and I, don't, I don't think you'll ever escape paradoxes in American history or the history of any other country, to tell you the truth. Right. Well, I'll leave it with this. Lincoln's address, we met, uh, his Gettysburg address, four score and seven years ago, our, foul, our fathers brought forth in this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And I think that's kind of what you're saying, is that can we live with this paradox or is it going to tear us apart 
as we reach the midpoint of the 19th century. So anyway, there we are, uh, pod one on the Constitution. We're going to actually come back and we're really going to jump into the Constitution itself and break apart the articles and talk about the importance of each of the articles. And I guarantee you, unless you are a, a student, a real student of the Constitution, we are going to bring up things in the Constitution that you do not know about. So thanks a lot for joining us. And until next week, uh, have a good one.